History happened everywhere. A random place, a random time, and a topic pulled from the hat. The challenge? Find the fascinating, uncover the unexpected, and share the stories. You're listening to... History happened everywhere. My name is Brian Weir, and I'm here in the HHE studio with the relief valve to my ballcock. It's Mr. Peter Goddard. I'm glad you got to be the ballcock, and I do feel like a relief valve in so many ways in life, just venting constantly. <laughs> now, Peter, last episode, the Dursalator gave you plumbing in the Himalayas during the 1950s. Certainly did. And I'm sure you are overflowing with things to tell us about. So why don't you release the pressure and plunge right in by telling the listeners what's coming down the pipe in today's episode. Well, today, Ryan, we are going to the era of rock and roll to visit the biggest rocks of all, the Himalayan mountain range. We're going high to learn about the death zone of a mountain, what it is and why you should probably avoid it. And we're going to meet the adventurers willing to brave it nevertheless and the plumbing that made it possible. We're going low to find the deepest toilet in the world and why it never needs cleaning. And we're going to learn about the Lama, whose 1950s autobiography about his life in Tibet inspired a generation of enthusiasts for the country. But this Lama had a stunning secret that will shock you. Welcome to the roof of the world. Welcome to the third pole. Welcome to the Himalayas. Okay, well, Peter, my goodness, you have piqued my interest, and uh, (laughs) I actually didn't mean that one. (laughs) Oh, my Lord. Yeah, let that sink in. Carry on. Did I I try and force it? (laughs) I'm tapping out. I'm tapping out at this point. (laughs) That was my next one. Damn it. Right, come on, Peter, you know the score. Orient me. Where the heck is the Himalayas? Well, you say the Himalayas, but apparently locally it is pronounced Himalayas. No way! That is something I've discovered. And I have to say, for this podcast, I will not be calling it the Himalayas, simply because I will forget, and then there'll be a horrible mix of Himalayas and Himalayas, and uh, I'm just going to stick with the Himalayas for this one, but with a preemptive apology to everyone, Himalayas is apparently the more proper way of saying it. It's a fun way of saying it, too. It is a fun way of saying it, but it is Himalayas. not... Himalayas! I've, I've spent 50 years being wrong, and I'm not ready to <laughs> stop now. Now, it is a mountain range, as you probably know. The name Himalayas or Himalaya, coming from the Sanskrit words for snow or frost and the word for dwelling. So it is the home of snow. The home of snow. Home of snow. That sounds fun. Yeah, uh, it's a mountain range in Asia, or more accurately, just across Asia. So if you go to India, the sticky down triangle in the Asian region, mm-hmm. head north, where if you have a relief map, you'll see a very clear curve, like a smile running above India and below China. I call it the smile of Asia, but I am, of course, oh. the only person to call it the smile of Asia, but uh, <laughs> maybe it'll catch on. We don't know. Yeah. Now, depending on you draw the start and the end it's a mountain range right so it's not a country it doesn't have borders it doesn't have a line that says this country ends here so you know where do you begin and end when it comes to a mountain range so depending on where you do start and end the the himalayas you have a number of countries with the himalayas in them or in the himalayas the ones that you would probably think of are bhutan tibet nepal those kind of yes. mountainy countries but also the himalayas make up part of india china and pakistan but obviously a much smaller part of those much bigger countries but on top of that some people draw the line there 
there. But other people actually say Afghanistan and Myanmar are also Himalayan nations because they've got a, a bit of Himalaya in them, a little foothill or something. I'm not sure. Like I say, there's not a clear line that says Himalayas end here. So you kind of pick your countries, really. That's quite astonishing, isn't it? That it touches so many. Like you say, I think most people think of Bhutan and Tibet, Nepal. Yeah, it is a truly a large feature. <laughs> there's no mm. avoiding it. You, I've, I kept looking at maps and just thinking, wow, it's just such a huge thing. It sounds trivial to say, but every time I was looking at maps, I was like, that's just a massive mountain range. They're going to cut yeah. this whole area in two. Amazing. Now, geographically, Ryan, well, what do you think there is there? Uh, rock. Rock, correct. Mountains. It's made of mountains, Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> Ice. Yes, this is what comes to mind, isn't it? Snowy peaks, freezing winds, you know, climbers and whatnot. But uh, yeah. obviously it's not all snowy peaks and freezing winds. There are lush, warm, fertile foothills, as well mm. as the classic mountains that you think of when uh, you think of the word Himalayas. Now, there are also quite a varied set of environments. So normally we're talking about latitude and longitude when we're talking about climate. Is it equatorial? Is it far north? But the Himalayas has a third factor, which is incredibly important in climate, which is altitude. No, altitude. Altitude. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, exactly. So as you start low, the, uh, there's more uh, water, there's more fertile soil, there's trees, there's all sorts of greenery. And then obviously, as you go up and up and up, the air gets thinner, there's less to grow, there's less animals. And then you get to the very top and it's all snow and rock, as you are probably thinking when you started this podcast. Mm. So yeah, you've got actually quite a wide range of climates, because not because of latitude and longitude, but because of altitude. Yeah, you judge a place by how high it goes as well. That's fascinating. Yeah, exactly. And I'd, we'd never really come across this before. I mean, obviously, it's a factor everywhere that the higher places are colder, but it just didn't really occur to me that that third dimension has, a, has an environmental impact as well. Which doesn't make sense because you're closer to the sun and the sun is warm. So in no. theory, the higher you go up, the warmer you should get. Take that, science. <laughs> <laughs> Now, size, Ryan, is always going to be a bit of an approximation. Like I said, there's not a line that says you are now entering the Himalayas. It's uh, where do you draw the line to it for it beginning and ending? It's not a clear border. But uh, we can say the range runs for a length of about 2,400 kilometres, one and a half thousand miles. Wow. That's yeah. really far. It really goes a long way. And it's got a width of varying between about 350 kilometres, 220 miles to about 150 kilometres, uh, 93 miles. So that gives us an approximate area of 595,000 square kilometres, 230,000 square miles. Which is? I know what you're thinking. How many Frances might that be? <laughs> yeah, how many uh, Frances in a Himalayas? It's a little bit more than a France. It's 1.07 of a France, in fact. So it's like a very high up France. Really? Yeah. I thought for sure the Himalayas was going to be massive, like several Frances to a Himalayas. Just no, it's it's very long, but it's relatively thin. It's uh, you know, it's uh, only so. three hundred and fifty kilometers at its widest, hundred and fifty kilometers at its narrowest. So, mm. uh, I think that's a, a major part of it. Very cool. So, obviously, for the same reasons, population is a difficult thing to estimate because, again, no lines. I found a few numbers for this. Wikipedia said fifty-three million people. I found a nineteen eighty-seven conference paper that said thirty-three million people. There's a book by a guy called Ed Douglas called Himalaya: A Human History. He says fifty million. So let's go with fifty million. About 50 million people in the area. Okay. As for flags, obviously we like to talk about a flag. There is, again, it's not a country, it doesn't have a flag, but uh, if you are visiting the Himalayas, in particular if you're in Tibet, when you're walking around the hills and uh, valleys of Tibet, you might find a bunch of string of flags set out, a little bit like bunting, along a ridge or across a field, or sometimes they're stacked vertically. Little mini flags on a rope. Little mini flags on a rope, exactly. And these are little square or rectangular flags with colours in sets of five, and they all represent something. So you have a blue flag for sky and space, white for air and wind, 
wind, red for fire, green for water, and yellow for earth. And these are prayer flags. I've seen these, but I just thought that was fashion. I didn't think there was a rationale behind the colours. That's really fascinating to know. Yeah, and if you get up close, you'll see on the flags as well, there's some writing, which are mantras, which are kind of prayers or chants. And also on them, you might find a picture of a horse, which is a lung tar, or wind Mm -hmm. horse, which is symbolic of the human soul. Oh, wow. Now, Ryan, when you're putting up your prayer flags, you're supposed to put up the flags in a specific order. So the colours in that order, I think, is the order I gave you. Yeah. But much more important than that is you have to hang them with positive intent. So you hang them high and the idea is they flutter in the air because that fluttering spreads their blessings on the wind to everybody around. Ah, like dust, like fairy dust. Hopeful, optimistic, lovely dust. Yes, exactly. But if you don't do it with hopeful intent, nothing, no dust. I would imagine, yeah, as with all things, Mm. good intent is a very valuable thing in human relations right uh, so i think that's i'm going to call that the flag of the himalayas the prayer flag that spread blessings across the range i love it that's really cool now there also isn't a national anthem because it's not a nation it's got bits in tibet china nepal india so one song that everyone can get behind is going to be a pretty pretty mm. big ask i think so i have elected to just choose one really i've chosen the song himalayas by Stuart copeland one time drummer of the police and ricky kedge this is from their 2021 album divine tides so let's listen to Himalayas, my candidate for Himalayan anthem. All right. Oh, this is good. Is it transporting you? Yeah, a little bit. It's good, isn't it? It's quite uh, evocative. It's mellow. It's tuneful. I like it. Very mellow. Spiritual. Hard to sing so far. Hard to march to. Very hard to march to, but maybe that's the point. Maybe it's for climbing and considering nature. I'm picturing a horse. Absolutely. There's a woman in a sari riding on the back of a horse along a beach for some reason. With mountains behind. Yeah. Snow-capped mountains. All right. All right, this is awesome. So, yeah, we'll pop a link to that in the show notes. So if anyone wants to listen to the whole thing, they are more than welcome to. I'm sure Stuart will be thanking us soon. (laughs) Through his lawyer. (laughs) (laughs) So, Ryan, there is no national animal because, again, it's not a nation. But I have chosen a national animal for the Himalayas. Can you guess what it is? Is it the horse? It is not the horse. Uh, Is it the mountain climber? Almost. I have chosen, Ryan... The Yeti as the national Oh, <laughs> why didn't I think of that? Oh, of course. This is a large ape-like creature spotted from time to time in the Himalayas. Yeah. Tibetan lore actually says there are three types of Yetis. The Nialmo, which is black fur and is 15 feet tall and is fierce and scary. Yeah. Chuti, which is about eight feet tall, which is about your height, I believe. And the Rangshimbombo, which has reddish brown fur and is only three to five feet tall, which is Oh, come so on. Cute. Who didn't, wouldn't want a tiny Yeti? Three foot tall. Right, you That's amazing. <laughs> I think I am one. <laughs> Certainly a Bigfoot. I th- well, you are indeed. Now, the Himalayas is mountainy, as we said. Wait, wait, uh, wait, 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 wait. Slow down. We're talking yetis. I have questions. <laughs> Go ahead, caller. <laughs> 
Do you think that they exist? I do not think they exist. Uh, unfortunately for you, Ryan, there is little to no evidence of them having existed. There's a lot of evidence. They found fur or hair. They found big footprint things. Sir David Attenborough, the naturalist, <laughs> naturist. Naturist. He's, he's not a naturist. That's naked people. <laughs> he says that they exist. Well, in that case, they probably, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I think, Ryan, they maybe don't, but this is definitely a conversation for the verdict. For the verdict. <laughs> I thought you might like that. That's part of the reason I chose the Yeti, to be honest, to give you a chance. I will come bearing facts. <laughs> don't you worry. Evidence. Okay, now back to true facts. The Himalayas have nine of the ten highest peaks in the world. Nine of the ten? Nine of the ten highest peaks in the world. Obviously, huh. it also includes the tallest, the famous Mount Rushmore. Everest. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Mount Everest. Mount Everest. Now, That's a big one, isn't it? It is a very big one. The biggest of them all. Uh, fun fact, it was named Everest by the Royal Geographic Society based on the recommendation of the British Surveyor General of India, a man who had been hired by one Sir George Everest. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. This was his, predece <laughs> his predecessor as Surveyor General, which is one hell of a way to say thanks for the job, mate. <laughs> mm. uh, interestingly, Sir George Everest had no connection to Everest. He never saw it, and he actually objected to it being the name. Really? On the grounds that, as a word, it's not easily pronounced or written in Hindi. Oh, okay. Well, that's fair then. Yeah, yeah exactly. It didn't make any difference. The surveyors claimed they could not find a consistent local name for the place, so from 1865 it became officially Everest. So in the future they just went with K2. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, actually, it turns out there is a local name for Everest. The locals in Tibet at least call it Chomolungma, meaning goddess mother of the world. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, but for the purposes of this podcast, Ryan, once again, for ease and my laziness, I'm going to call it Everest because that's what everyone will recognise. Mm. Everest's summit is 29,029 feet, mm. 8,848 metres above sea level. What's that in terms of something I can understand? That is 8,848 Meter rules. <laughs> oh, wow. Hope that clears it up for you. <laughs> How many Eiffel Towers or something is it? 30 Eiffel Towers. And there isn't a restaurant at the top. See, I've been to the middle of the Eiffel Tower, like the, the first floor or whatever it is. And that was scary high even there. So 30... <laughs> well, 60 and, times that if lot. you're only halfway. Yeah. <laughs> wow, that's, that's really high. Now, question, Ryan. Who is the person who has stood highest on Earth? Ooh, the person who first climbed Mount Everest. Good guess. Incorrect, though. The tallest person who's ever climbed Mount Everest. No, it is the person who is standing on Everest right now, because Everest is actually growing by about four millimetres a year. Oh, that's clever. Trick question, but clever. In fact, the whole of the Himalayas is in motion, basically. So there's a combination of the pushing together of tectonic plates that sort of shoves the mountains up. But there's mm. also erosion. There's also earthquakes. In 2015, there was an earthquake of 7.8 magnitude, which caused one area of the Himalayas to sink by two feet. So, Oh, my goodness. Wow. If you looked at it over time, you'd see this sort of swelling and falling and swelling and falling of the mountain range. Or breathing. Or breathing. The planet is breathing, Ryan breathing also the himalayas contains the third largest deposit of ice and snow on the planet which is where it gets its name which we mentioned at the beginning of the third pole 
Uh, do you know, I was wondering why it was called the third pole. I thought maybe it was to do with some sort of magnetic thing, but no, just a bunch of snow. Yeah, I think it may also have been contrib- a contributory factor of it was a place undiscovered for a long time in that age of mm. golden age of discovery when people hit the South Pole and the North Pole. The top of Everest was actually in the same sort of things that we haven't achieved yet kind of category. Sure. So here's another thing, Ryan. I said that Everest is growing by four millimetres a year. Mm-hmm. Other mountains are growing faster. There's a mountain called Nanga Parbat in the Pakistani Himalayan range. It's growing seven millimetres a year. Whoa. So basically, it's catching up. Slow down, buddy. In just a quarter of a million years, Ryan, all things being equal, it might overtake Everest and become the highest mountain. Ah, so if we climb it now, in a quarter of a million years or whatever it was, we can say that we climbed the highest mountain. Climb now and just wait. Yeah, just, just <laughs> for a quarter of a million it. years. <laughs> Camp at the top. I did it. <laughs> <laughs> so that, Ryan, is the Himalayas. Himalaya facts! <laughs> you just have to do it. Because <laughs> you refuse to do it. I do refuse to do it. <laughs> hey, Pete. Hey, Ryan. Have you got a minute? Well, I'm a bit busy. I'm finishing up my notes on the Himalayas. Oh, 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 no, you're pronouncing that wrong. Oh, yeah, you're right, you're right. The Himalayas. No, 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 no. No? Well, what is it then? Well, it's the Themalayas. The what now? The Themalayas. You can't go around misgendering things anymore, Pete. It's not the Himalayas, it's the Themalayas. That's crazy. You can't misgender a mountain. Yes, you can. You can misgender loads of places. Such as? Well, um, Herzegovina. That's now called... Called Themzegovina. Right. Turkmenistan. That's now called Turkpeopleistan. Okay. And of course, Guyana. What's wrong with Guyana? Well, you can't just say guy. It's sexist. It, it, it assumes the male. So now we just call it Individualana. Oh, this is stupid. Just leave me alone, Ryan. I'm just saying, you're going to get yourself cancelled. Oh, yeah. Who's going to cancel me? The snowflakes. They're all over the Themalayas. Ryan, you're a Thembasil. That's the spirit. <laughs> Okay, Pete. Well, look, I am fully oriented now. I know where it is. I know how high it is. I know things about it. (laughs) (laughs) But the thing I don't know is its history. So why don't you sit me down and give me a very short, entertaining lecture about the history of the Himalayas? Well, Ryan, much like the Tropic of Cancer, I have a problem here, which is that there are numerous countries, like I said, I could give you the history of India, China, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Myanmar, Bhutan. I can't do that. That's going to take all day and be not a good use of our time. So to keep it brief, I'll go back to the beginning. 70 million years ago. That's good. I like it when it goes back that far. This is during the Upper Cretaceous, the Indo-Australian plate. This is a tectonic plate on which the land masses exist. Uh, and that's the one that India is sitting on. This was hurtling northwards, Ryan, at a speed of up to 15 centimetres a year. Whoa! <laughs> it was out of control. <laughs> a crash was inevitable, Ryan, at of those course. kind of Slow down! And what we know now is Asia was in the wrong place at the wrong time. No! Asia, no! I know. Watching, you couldn't do anything to intervene because after just 20 million years, <laughs> boom! No! 
very low velocity crash happened. <laughs> mm. uh, this is where the Indian plate hit the Eurasian plate and they formed what is called a thrust fault. So what happens mm. is the one plate kind of crumples under the other one and pushes the one above it up. So that rocks crash together, crumple up and push upwards, forming a mountain range, the Himalayas. Oh, right. Now you hang around for another 70 million years or so and enter early man. Mm. Now, not the early man we normally talk about. Oh. I think we've come across these guys in a previous episode. Uh, do you, are you aware of the Denisovans? We have talked about the Denisovans, yeah. I think we have. So this is a now extinct subspecies of humans, much like Neanderthals. Mm. There are only eight known bits of Denisovan that have been found, actually. Uh, and one of these is a bit of a jawbone that was found in a cave in Tibet. So this suggests that these very early humanoids were living at altitude in the Himalayas 160,000 years ago. I wonder why they were up so high. I guess, as with all these people looking for something to eat, is usually... <laughs> Usually the plan, isn't yeah. it? Or running away from someone who doesn't like them down below. Now, normally, Ryan, I'd have a scamper through a country history, but things get complicated because not only does it cover a lot of ground, the Himalayas are a kind of a considerable barrier in the area, right? So the history of the north side has been heavily influenced by Mongols and Chinese. It's quite different to the history of the south side, where India is the dominant power. Uh, so I'm going to try and give you an extremely brief overview, but I'm not going to go into too much detail because, like I say, I think we'd get lost pretty quickly. So in short... North of the wall, as I like to think of it. <laughs> well, it is kind of like a wall, isn't it? It is. It I mean, very you try much and is. get over it. Good luck. <laughs> From the 7th to the 9th century, the Tibetans have an empire, actually, a substantial bit of power in the area. Then, as we've seen so many times, the Mongols arrived for a bit and then the Chinese arrived for a bit. In the 14th century, Tibet became independent, which it remains until the 17th century. And this is when the senior Lama, the Dalai Lama, becomes the head of state in Tibet. Uh, in 1720, the Qing dynasty from China moved in, and then there's back and forth, the Chinese and the Tibetans and the British as well pop up occasionally. And to this day, a lot of this is basically Tibet being a part of China. Now, saying Tibet is a part of China is quite a controversial thing in and mm. of itself today, uh, and it's disputed by many, including the Dalai Lama of today, who remains the leader in exile of Tibet. But more or less, in the north, Mongols, Chinese and Tibetans are flowing back and forth. And then the British arrive for a little bit. Mm -hmm. On the south side, do a find and replace. China for India. <laughs> oh, really? You've got uh, essentially the 4th century, the Gupta Empire was the big name in town. There's various kingdoms emerge and spread and fade. More influenced by the British who arrive with the East India Company and start to meddle with everybody. Everyone gets fed up with the British in 1947. India and Nepal both become independent. Bhutan, meanwhile, actually manages to be independent throughout the entire time uh, hiding in the mountains as they were mm. india nowadays bicker with pakistan and kashmir which is a, a himalayan area and bhutan minds its own business and nepal plays host to an endless stream of aspiring everest conquerors which side note you can also get to from tibet but it's the chinese side so more commonly going in through nepal so that is as whistle stop as I want to go. So the Chinese, the Mongols, the Tibetans are fairly chunky in the north. India, Pakistan and the small mountain nations uh, in the south. Amazing. So does that mean that the Himalayas then are open to the world? No, not at all. Uh, the control of the access to the to Everest in particular, if I'm going to talk about the ascent of Everest, which was in the 1950s, later in the show. Actually, the British at that time controlled access to Everest. So they... they Unless you were in with the British, you really couldn't even have a go at climbing Everest. So it, absolutely the opposite. It wasn't open at all. Tibet closed its borders for a long time. Bhutan is not very open to people. So actually quite the opposite. Mostly it was not wholly welcoming to people coming around. 
Okay. So it's not like the other poles where you can just rock up and have a wander around if you like. No, because they all the poles are kind of their own places, whereas the Himalayas exist within nation states. So yeah, there's patchwork of other nations comprising it. Okay. It, exactly. Cool. So and, and of course, throughout all this coming and going, Mongols, Chinese, Indians and whatnot, the mountains are the mountains. They sit there looking down, going, Meh, whatever, right? <laughs> in nineteen fifty three, the mightiest mountain of them all, Everest, was conquered and the mountain wondered conquered. How was I conquered? I've I've been here Mm. forever and I will be here more. That you stood on me means nothing to me. (laughs) So that, Ryan, is the history of the Himalayas. I love it. I often say that I want to go and visit a place and I'm sure it's very beautiful, but it intimidates me and it seems cold. I have to say, I left this wanting to go. So I think Uh. maybe I'll ask you again at the end of the episode. Maybe you'll see things differently. (laughs) Sketch, sketch, sketch. Sketch, sketch, sketch. Hey, Pete. Hey, Ryan. I'm up a mountain. Oh, my God. It's so cold. I died. (laughs) You're an idiot. Uh, uh, (laughs) Just put that in. Right, Pete. So we've oriented. I've got my history. Now, the topic of this is an interesting one, isn't it? This is one that I think threw a spanner in the works, a wrench in the plans. There was a wrench in the plans, a spanner in the works. I initially was slightly nervous about the topic of plumbing, but actually I think we found some quite interesting things to talk about. And that takes a little bit of an abstract view of plumbing, but uh, I'll, I'll explain why it'll be clear and I think you'll buy it. All right. Tell me about plumbing. So the word plumbing itself comes from the Latin word plumbum meaning lead. This is also why the symbol for lead on the periodic table is PB. That's cool. And it's that way because lead was the material that the early Romans used to create their pipes. Makes sense. Now, you're not a Dr. Ryan, but I suspect you are aware that lead in your plumbing is not a brilliant idea. No, it'll kill you, right? Well, it can cause irritability and fatigue, abdominal pain and vomiting, development delay and learning difficulties, and a bunch of other not very nice things. I have all of those things. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you might want to check your pipe work. (laughs) There actually was a theory from a few people that lead poisoning was a contributing factor to the downfall of the Roman Empire. Oh, really? Is that right? Well, just over the years, so much lead got into their system that they all started going a little bit crazy. That is the theory. But I've got to tell you, Ryan, in 2014, French researchers carried out a study that found that although Roman water could have had as much as 100 times the lead that the local spring water had, it concluded that it probably wasn't enough to cause those serious issues. So uh, I don't think that's now a a recognised conclusion, but you know, it was, it's still a theory that's out there. Nowadays, of course, plumbing is more commonly done with plastic. So obviously we don't right. use lead anymore. So you don't have to worry when you're taking a drink. No, of course, because, you know, we don't have plastic in our system at all. That would be fine, probably. You know, <laughs> tiny little plastic particles broken down. That, yeah. that doesn't happen, does it? Cut to podcast in <laughs> half a million years going, and they used plastic with their water. The yeah. lunatics. Now we use asbestos. <laughs> Which it turned out was fine. Uh, now, famous plumbers, Ryan. Uh, Super Mario. Super Mario is my first famous plumber. Did you know he was not originally a plumber? Was he a tennis player? He was a carpenter in Donkey Kong. Oh, right. Carpenter. Yeah, oh, is then... that why he was throwing barrels? No, Donkey Kong was throwing barrels, but he was on a building site. So, I But where did he get the barrels from? The... Super Mario. Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, he didn't would... bring his own barrels. Well, that would make him a Cooper, <laughs> wouldn't it, rather than a <laughs> I don't know. carpenter? Now, so when the game Super Mario Brothers came out, that featured underground pipes and they went, oh, we'll call him a plumber because he's going down in pipes. That figured out. Makes sense. 
And why why can't you be a carpenter and a plumber? You can be multi-trade, why not? Right. Uh, now, I'm told that nowadays he's known as a former plumber. I think if you go to the official websites, it says he was once a plumber rather than he is still a plumber. So Makes sense, because, you know, he's too busy off adventuring. He's got a lot going on, as, as we know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, now, other plumbers, you will know clearly Samuel Joseph Wurzelbacker. Yeah, I do. Yeah, he's also known as Joe the Plumber. Joe the Plumber, yeah. Yeah, he was the guy who became famous in 2008 in the US presidential election where he became kind of a symbol of the ordinary American. Yeah, which president was it? I think it was Obama. I'm going to say Obama, confidently. It was Obama. Okay. Also in American politics, we had the White House Plumbers, which you may or may not be aware of. This was a group formed by Richard Nixon. Was it a band? No, no. It was a group of people whose job was to prevent the leaking of information to the media, hence the plumbers. Ah, now the oh, reason, that's very cool. <laughs> the reason you may have heard of them was they became famous when two of these so-called plumbers, G. Gordon Liddy and E. Howard Hunt, organised a break-in at the Watergate Hotel. Yes. Triggering one of the biggest scandals in American history. I am not a crook. Is that what he said? He did say that, and he was yeah. a crook. <laughs> Inconceivable that somebody would lack dignity in that office. Uh, we need to define plumbing for the show, Ryan. So as you can see, the plumbers weren't actual plumbers, and Joe the plumber was an actual plumber, but you know, plumbing is quite a useful metaphor in many ways. But a dictionary defines plumbing as the system of pipes, etc., that supply water to a building. This was the first one that I came across. It seemed fairly uh, straightforward. But it's also used as a euphemism. I've got to go to the doctor and talk about my plumbing. What does that mean? Uh, usually talking about genitourinary issues. Ah... So for the purposes of this episode, Ryan, I'm going to consider plumbing to include managing water as well as pipes that move fluids around. It does manage water, doesn't it? It, it does. sort of it, it shifts the, it around the place. Exactly. I'm talking health and hygiene. I'm talking washing and drinking. And that's plumbing to me. Without though. plumbing, water is just a puddle. Exactly. Exactly so, Ryan. And that's why I think you're with me on this journey into Himalayan plumbing in the 1950s. Oh, I'm with you. Let's go. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> Wahoo! It's a me, super stereotypical carpenter man. Ah, yes, actually, that's what we needed to talk to you about. I've been looking at the accounts, and frankly, they are not good. Sales are way down. But I am a super stereotypical carpenter man. I am maker the beautiful furniture. Wahoo! Listen, nobody's denying your skill, but what with the cost of raw materials and the competition from the big box stores, nobody wants to pay for highly skilled artisanal carpentry anymore. No trade is dying. Oh, it is a me. It's not you. It's the whole industry, market forces. We're, we're losing money at an unsustainable rate. And frankly, we need to think of something else. Oh, woohoo! How about uh, we grow the mushrooms and sell the mushrooms and definitely don't eat the mushrooms? Woohoo! Oh, mushrooms again. Look, we've talked about this and you know you can't be around mushrooms anymore. Not after last time. They make me a big and a strong. Woohoo! And we've all seen the come down. So that's it then. Super stereotypical carpenter man is no more. We are going down the tubes. Down the tubes! Wait, that's it! You're a genius! Wahoo! But why? Tubes, pipes, plumbing! Everyone needs plumbing. You could be super stereotypical plumber man. Wahoo! It's a me, super stereotypical plumber man. Yes! And I'll go into the pipes where the mushrooms grow. No! Wahoo! Okay, Pete. 
Tell us, what is your first story? All right, Ryan, we're here to talk about plumbing in the Himalayas in the 1950s. Now, obviously, water is a vital resource everywhere you go. Everyone needs it to live. And again, the Himalayas is big. It's difficult to generalise for the whole of the area's plumbing. But I'm going to make some general points about water management and plumbing in the high Himalayas. Okay. Now, in Tibet, even today, modern plumbing, pipes, taps, all the things that we take for granted is quite rare, in fact. Many households don't have electricity either. And so I think we can fairly say there was much the same in the 1950s. But we can also be certain they wouldn't waste large amounts of perfectly good water to do things like flushing a toilet. That would be mm. a crazy use of valuable water. So I found in one blog, it's a blog called Shadow Tibet by a Tibetan writer called Jamyang Norbu. And he talks about a conversation about Tibetan toilets that he had with his uncle. <laughs> okay. So in it, he, he mentions that when you go into the toilet in a traditional Tibetan home, you might find in the room a bucket of ash with a spade in it. Okay. Any ideas what to do with that? Plug yourself up. <laughs> I guess you could, but you would have made an error there. This is a this is like the three seashells in Demolition Man. <laughs> what do I do with the ash? <laughs> I mean, okay. Well, if I were faced with that situation, what would I do? I'd squat over the bucket, and then I would use the shovel to uh -huh. cover it up. Okay, that is. I mean, you're a bit like a cat in a litter tray. I'll give you yeah, that. but uh, <laughs> you're not a million miles off. But you All may right. have to mention to your host that you've done something despicable in his ash bucket. <laughs> <laughs> so, the, the Why, what am I supposed to do with it? Well, uh, Jamyang Nolbu explains, quote, the toilet in most traditional Tibetan homes are on the second floor or higher and always at the back of the house. Okay. So why is it the back? Because the back would tend to be north facing, which is the coldest side of the house. So that reduces right. odours from your output, shall we say. Oh, okay. Okay. So you did your business through the hole in the floor and waste dropped directly into the collection room below. So there's no intervening pipes or any mechanism. So it's just a hole. Okay. I just so, want to point out, you never mentioned there was a hole in the floor. <laughs> I would never have used the ash bucket if I knew there was a hole in the floor. Okay. Well, now there's a hole in the floor, you've realised. <laughs> this may change your approach to the <laughs> ash bucket. So he goes on. You use the spade to pick up the ash and spread it through the hole after you've finished. His uncle, Tomyor La, maintained that the secret of the Tibetan toilet was basically the ash from the household kitchen fire. This is because mm. wood ash is known to have deodorising and disinfecting properties. In fact, if your dog gets skunked, wood ash is a very good thing to wash your dog with because it deodorises it. Huh. Nice. So Norby doesn't specify, but presumably the ash and the waste would then be collected and used as fertiliser because we talked about that in our Scotland episode. We did. And that, sir, is the long drop approach to a toilet in the Himalayas. So there isn't plumbing because there's no water or pipes, but... I think that counts in the plumbing department. I'd say so. Like if the hole in the floor got blocked, I'd call a plumber. Exactly. I, I don't know how it's blocked and now I've got horrible visions. <laughs> <laughs> Ryan, what have you done in the ash bucket? This has been a terrible visit. <laughs> Now, this long drop approach is taken to the extreme in a place called the Patala Palace. This is the one-time winter palace of the Dalai Lama in the Tibetan fortress of Lhasa. This sounds fictional, doesn't it? It does sound made up, doesn't it? Like a video game mm. or something. But this toilet is the uh, same situation. It's a hole and then it drops down. Uh, I've seen 10 metres and 60 metres given. Either way, there are many metres. 60 metres? The... <laughs> exactly. Now, either way, I think that makes it possibly the, I don't know what to say, deepest, tallest, longest toilet in the world. I don't know how you would mm. describe that measure. And then you just leave because where your deposits were left was exposed so the wind and the rain would just take care of it so not only did you have this long drop toilet but you didn't need to clean it because it would be self-cleaning in that respect mm. um, i reckon you've probably probably got to clean the hole yeah. I reckon that probably needs a little mop every now and then. Yeah, I think There's so. going to be some overspill, isn't there? You did, I definitely think there's some maintenance to this whole uh, setup. 
to the hole. To the, the hole. It's been a lot simpler <laughs> than a ball cock and all the various mechanics that we have. Oh, going yeah. On. So you call out the plumber and he just pokes the hole a bit, <laughs> I guess. If the wood gets rotten, do you fall 60 metres to your death? I think that is very much the end of you if you uh, go through those wow. rotten floorboards. So be careful. It's a hazardous enterprise going to a Tibetan toilet. Oh, oh wise lama, I have come to seek your guidance on the path to enlightenment. Ah, please enter and speak your heart. Oh, uh, Lama, I, I, I didn't realise you were um, occupied. I, I can come back later. No, no, no. Enlightenment is found in every moment and every place. Even here in the bathroom where we are, in a way, at our most human. Your question? Uh, all, all right. Uh, well, I struggle with detachment. I see. And uh, how I can become more detached and find true peace. Ah, well, detachment. Yes, it is like the toilet paper I currently hold. Do you see? Oh, uh, yeah, 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 that's very efficient. Thank you. We cling to it, believing it necessary. But once it has served its purpose, we must let it go. Or it creates a mess. But, but what if we fear letting it go? Fear is merely the flush of a toilet. It can be loud and startling, but it's no more than a fleeting moment, and then it is gone, leaving clarity in its wake. Right. So to overcome attachment and fear, I should be like toilet paper? Indeed. Such as this bit. Yeah, yeah, okay. That, that saw it before. Thanks. Well, look, thank you, Lama. I will meditate upon this and strive to let go and be present, whether I am in the Grand Hall or here in the little monk's room. Good, good. Now, would you care to sit with me while I finish? No, uh, no, no, I'm good. Thank you. All questions answered. Uh, enlightenment awaits. Well, on that note, I think I'm about to be quite enlightened myself. All right, Peter, what's up next? Next, sir, uh, we have... Plumbing at 26,000 feet. Ah, oh, this is more like it. Here we go. So, Ryan, this next story is about plumbing on a much more personal scale. Now, okay. I don't know if you realise this, Ryan, but the Himalayas is famous for its mountains. Are they? Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> where there are mountains, there are mountaineers. And they need to go to poo-poo and wee-wee. They do, but that's not what we're going to talk about. Oh. In mountaineering, there's this idea of an 8,000er. What's that? Well, this is a peak that stands over 8,000 metres tall. That's 26,247 feet above sea level. Okay, that's tall. So right now, the International Mountaineering and Climbing Federation recognises just 14 mountains in the world to be 8,000ers. Wow. And 10 of those are just in Nepal. So again, Himalayas are really hogging the mountain action. Mm. But why is this height so significant? Ryan because I don't don't know I don't know Pete well Ryan the bit of a peak above 8,000 meters is known to climbers as the death zone oh so this is the altitude above which the oxygen isn't sufficient to sustain human life for an extended period of time all right so we're talking airplane level we're talking very high up and you can't breathe. This is a concept that was identified in our time period, 1953. A Swiss doctor called Edouard Wies Dunant, uh, he called it the lethal zone, but, you know, it's not as much friendlier, is it, really? <laughs> uh, and he drew <laughs> his... the same thing to me. <laughs> <laughs> he drew his conclusions after leading a failed Swiss attempt on the summit of Everest in 1952. Okay. 
So the problem here is the underlying issue that gives rise to one of the great debates of mountaineering that was still raging throughout the 1950s, and this is the use of oxygen whilst climbing. Okay. So at this time, particularly in Britain, mountaineering was dominated by sort of gentleman amateurs, right? They had a philosophy where pluck and vim and determination were good and trying your best and professionalism and science were bad, right? (laughs) You're not supposed to make an effort. You're supposed to be gentlemanly, splendid, put on a tweed jacket and get up that mountain. Exactly. So the Alpine club which is the main mountaineering society at the time they had a blackballing system in place for members applying which was a system that basically ensured that the wrong sort of person couldn't get in Right. But what do we mean by wrong sort of person? Well, one vice president is said to have been speaking to a new member and he pointed to a street sweeper and said, I mean, we would never elect that fellow, even if he were the finest climber in the world. Oh, he sounds fun. Doesn't he, though? So on top of that, Leslie Stephen, who was a one-time president of the Alpine Club, said in 1924, true Alpine travellers loved the mountain for their own sake and considered scientific intruders with their barometers and their theorising to be a simple nuisance. Yeah. Big on. I want to climb this again in my tweed jacket, which is weirdly cold and heavy. Oh, no, I'm dead. Must be so comforting living in a world like that. The certainties were certainly warm and cosy, I have no doubt. Mm. One result of this attitude was a reluctance to use oxygen because it was kind of cheating, right? There'd always been suspicion amongst climbers (laughs) that it was beneficial, but it just wasn't considered sporting, Ryan. It's not sporting. How dare you try and breathe? So let let me give you an example. A man called Sandy Irvin. He was selected for a 19. 24 expedition to Everest and he said quote I really hate the thought of oxygen I'd give anything to make a non-oxygen attempt I think I'd sooner get to the foot of the final pyramid without oxygen than to the top with it I wonder if the same group of people that like deep sea diving say the same thing ah well here's a funny fact Sandy Irvine who I just quoted do you know what his job was deep sea diver no he was in charge of the oxygen for that trip to Everest what (laughs) was that why he didn't want it because he had to carry it well maybe and that is actually something we'll talk about but yeah to be fair to him I, I understand he did quite a good job and he made some improvements to the apparatus but yeah this whole there was a kind of a frown upon using oxygen was cheating and it doesn't count mm. and sadly on that expedition in fact him and the leader george mallory both died actually um, but there were mixed opinions, basically. And by the 1950s, there was a strong suspicion, clearly, that oxygen was going to be helpful. But it was frowned upon by the traditionalists and scientists were viewed with suspicion, I think it's fair to say. Because it's not dangerous enough, is it? No, exactly. It's like, well, it's, a lot of people are dying doing this. So uh, there was a Swiss attempt, the one I mentioned in 1952 on Everest, which did use oxygen, but their oxygen ran out, actually. And they got nearest to anyone at that time to the summit. And then British climbing realised they were running out of time to get to the the top first so they figured they had to bite the bullet and even though they should rather go up without it tally-ho they figured they had to take a more scientific approach and they had to use oxygen and accept that this was part of climbing if they were going to achieve this third pole the third achievement this uh, conquest so an expedition was planned for 1953 this was led by a guy called colonel john hunt and it also featured the new zealand climber edmund hillary as well as a fellow who led the local sherpas who was a chap named tenzing norgay names you may be familiar with i am indeed uh now you've heard of them but you're less Less likely to have heard of another member of the expedition, Griffith Pugh. Don't know him? No, no, indeed. Well, Pew was a doctor. He was a scientist and he was a big believer in the use of oxygen at altitude. So one of the reasons people didn't agree with oxygen wasn't necessarily that they thought oxygen in and of itself was a bad idea. The theory was the weight of all the kits, because oxygen is heavy and it's with big gas tanks on your back, was actually more hararmful than the benefits of the oxygen you got. Yeah, makes sense. So he, he actually You don't want to carry this. extra weight when you're already struggling to get up the world's tallest mountain. Exactly so. So Griffith Pew looked at this and he actually 
actually came to the conclusion that actually the way they had been doing it, this was true, that the oxygen wasn't giving you more benefits than the weight of it, but that was simply because they didn't have enough flow. So he made a bunch of experiments. He came up with a much increased flow of oxygen. And he also did a bunch of other experiments. This guy was quite a fascinating man, actually. He did help design the shoes. He created a, adjustments to the stoves that he used to melt the water, to the drink the to drink up in the mountain. He Basically, everything they had was largely influenced and improved by him. I bet he had a tinkerer's workshop. Oh, absolutely. This was a man with a shed in no uncertain terms. (laughs) So he had to fight to ensure oxygen was taken on the mission at all, despite the doubts of the other climbers. But over time, during the assault on Everest, actually everyone was pretty much won over to the idea. They realised they had a lot more energy and strength when they were plugged in than they did when they weren't. But there was still one outstanding question, Ryan, and it was a question of plumbing. Why? Well, oxygen for breathing can be supplied in either closed circuit or open circuit systems. What does that mean? The climber is breathing in normal air, but there's a tube that kind of pushes a bit of extra oxygen from a tank into that air you're breathing. So you get extra oxygen in the air you're breathing, and then you exhale into the atmosphere, and it just goes out into the atmosphere, right? So closed circuit is quite different. Your mouth's fully enclosed. It's kind of a vacuum pack, if you like, over your face. You inhale pure oxygen from the tank. So you're getting better oxygen, one might say. And Mm. then you breathe it out. The air that you breathe out is passed through a canister of soda lime powder, which absorbs the carbon dioxide. And any oxygen that's left goes back into the system. So you closed circuit being you're breathing this whole stuff. You're never interacting with the outside air. Like in your car, where you can turn your aircon on and close it to the outside. Exactly like that. Now, did you know, Ryan, that in the 1953 expedition to Everest, there were actually two separate attempts on the summit? Oh, I didn't know that, no. So the first was made by a guy called Tom Bordillon and Charles Evans, and they used closed circuit sets for their oxygen. Bordillon favoured the closed circuit set, possibly because uh, his dad developed them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So their plan was to go up and down the slope in a single go with no stopping to camp on the way. And then the second attempt was to be Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay, who would take the open circuit oxygen and they would set up a high camp about two thirds of the way up the summit and then go up and down and then come back after a little bit of camping. A little bit of camping. A little bit of camping. (laughs) That's how I like to characterise it. So going first was Evans and Bordelon. Then they struck up the snowy slopes. They headed for the top. But as you probably haven't heard of Evans and Bordelon, I think you know how this panned out. Yeah. Now, one of the oxygen sets malfunctioned and one of the problems they'd had with closed circuit was technical issues like this. So I think it was a valve that had a problem. Then there was an additional problem later as well. So they were forced to give up at 8,754 metres, 28,720 feet. That is higher than anyone else had ever got, 100 metres short of the summit. Oh, come on. I mean, that is literal touching distance. That is painful, isn't it? Close, but no cigar, guys. What a decision to have to make. Ah, uh, yeah, you got to Presumably, go, they, they knew it was that close as well. Yeah, they're, absolutely. People die regularly doing this, right? So you know that there's a lot at stake. So yeah, touching distance or no, they had to come home. Wow. So uh, obviously then Hillary and Tenzing set off with their open circuit oxygen sets. They chug loads of liquid to offset the dehydrating effects of the dry air and the altitude, which is another of the things that Griffith Pugh did. Again, the early climbers were like, oh, you shouldn't drink too much. That's a sign of weakness. And Griffith Pugh was like, you're going to die. Drink a lot. Are these guys crazy or what? A little bit. Also, clothes. (laughs) Clothes are ridiculous. Crazy. If you don't do it barefoot, it doesn't count. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, Hillary and Tenzing kept going and going and going and on the 29th of May 1953 Hilary and Tenzing Norgay reach the summit of Everest and enter the history books. 
because of plumbing. Right. Plumbing-wise, it's a victory for open-circuit oxygen, a victory that, as far as I can tell, continues to this day. I think most, if not all, climbers use open-circuit systems, even now. Mm. But in a sad postscript, Griffith Pugh, the guy who did so much to evangelise for oxygen, the scientific powerhouse who designed so much of their kit, made sure everything they did was on a sound scientific basis, was kind of ignored after the successful climb. The expedition leader, a guy called Hunt, he said, uh, quote, no one will want to hear about the science. The spotlight must be firmly on the human aspects of the achievement. Mm. So this poor guy got kind of pushed into the background. It probably didn't help. He sounds like a bit of a difficult character and a little bit of an oddball, to be honest. But yeah. he definitely deserved recognition for his contribution. I'm a bit worried that no one wants to hear our podcast now, though, if that's the case. No one's interested <laughs> in the science. <laughs> it's a risk we're taking. But I... In my small contribution to recognising this guy's contributions is a recommendation of a book, the book that I got most of this information from. It's called Everest, The First Ascent, The Untold Story of Griffith Pugh, The Man Who Made It Possible. It's written mm. by uh, somebody called Harriet Tucky, and I'm very confident she knows what she's talking about because she is Griffith Pugh's daughter. Oh, wow. That's fantastic. <laughs> so we'll put a link in the notes for anyone who wants to find out more about this remarkable character. There is, there's so much more to this story than this. I've just focused in on the plumbing element of obviously of course it's a fascinating story he was a fascinating man and it's uh it's a really readable book so i highly recommend anyone who has an interest in this definitely dig into it so that ryan was the tale of open and closed circuit oxygen in the conquest of everest or as i like to put it a story of plumbing in the himalayas in the 1950s it certainly is how about that what are we gonna talk about next oh mate you are gonna love the next one i'm so eager for plumbing oh it's this is gonna blow your mind <laughs> <laughs> all right well let's hear about it after this Carruthers, we're approaching the peak. Be a good chap and pass the gas canister, will you? Here you are, sir. Ah, very good. Oh, well, that's odd. Something wrong, sir. Well, this gas doesn't seem to be working. Are you still having problems breathing, sir? Breathing? What's breathing got to do with anything? I'm trying to make a tasty orange aid. I beg your pardon, sir? Fizzy drinks, man! Why the blazes do you think I brought this soda stream all the way? You were supposed to bring the gas! Oh, I understand. When you said gas, I just thought you meant oxygen, sir. Oxygen? Carruthers! I'll have you know I am a gentleman, and a gentleman doesn't climb with oxygen. He climbs with carbon dioxide and several tasty syrups. I see, sir. I just thought, you know, for this expedition, perhaps we might like to... not die. A gentleman doesn't fear death, Carruthers. But he does fear plain water, sir? We are not animals, Carruthers. An invigorating fizzy pop is what sets us apart from the savages. Generations of explorers have ventured into the unknown, packing a trusty soda stream to make refreshingly carbonated beverages. And didn't most of them die? Yes, indeed. And everyone with a glass of cherryade in hand. I see, sir. But I suppose a cheeky sniff of oxygen wouldn't hurt, would it? As long as we keep it between us, eh, Carruthers? Indeed, sir. All right, well, here goes. And how does Sir feel now? Well, I don't feel any different, Carruthers. Wait, what's happening? Ha-ha, got you, sir. A small prank to lighten the mood. You didn't really think I'd bring oxygen, did you? Ha-ha-ha! <laughs> oh, splendid. A fine prank, Carruthers. You are a good egg. Tally-ho! To the summit! All 
right, PD, on to the next section. I'm really excited about this one, Ryan. I've got to tell you. You have got a cheeky grin on your face. I have. So, Ryan, in 1956, square in our time period, a book was published in the UK entitled The Third Eye. Okay. Subtitled The Autobiography of a Tibetan Lama. Okay, cool. Now, on the cover of the book, the author's name was given Lobsang Rampa. This is the Tibetan monk in question. Right. And this book tells of his life high in the Himalayas and how he became a lama, a priest-like figure, shall we say. Right. So Rampa starts life in Tibet. He's the son of an aristocrat, talks about his childhood, flying kites, stilt walking, riding horses and falling off. Uh, And then one day he's sent to study as a priest. He's talented. Everyone notices how talented he is. He becomes a special monk. Um, And they train (laughs) him up. And then not just training him, on one particularly memorable occasion, he's taken to have his third eye opened which in this case means having a hole drilled in his skull. Wait, 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 what? <laughs> Did he know about this going into it? He was aware of it. And it's good, though. It's, it's a valuable procedure. Oh, it's good, is it? Because, it's good. Yeah, well, after the operation, he finds he is able to see people's auras and he's a little bit psychic. And so the book talks about Tibetan beliefs, the psychic powers that come with your third eye, a bit of telepathy, aura viewing, naturally. A little bit of levitation, in fact, is something you can also achieve. And, of course, he talks about the time he encountered a yeti. Right. Good. Now I'm happy. Right. So the book was published. It became a bestseller. Shifted half a million copies in two years. Mm-hmm. But not everyone was so taken with this book. And I might remind you, it's supposedly a factual book. Uh, and some people thought there was more magic and yetis than you might expect in a factual book. Uh, oh, there'd be yetis in a factual book. Well, indeed. So one Tibetan scholar opened his review with, this is a shameless book. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good review. I uh, hope they put that on the cover. Well, there's another one. This is an Aust- Austrian Tibetologist, Heinrich Harrer. Now, you may be familiar with Heinrich Harrer without realising it because he wrote I'm his not- own book about his personal experiences in Tibet entitled Seven Years in Tibet. Ah, they made that into a movie. Starring Brad Pitt. Bradley Pitt, yeah. Exactly. So, uh, Heinrich Harra hated Lobsang's book. Did he? was a lot less, well, yeah. He wrote a review that was so scathing, the publisher threatened to sue for libel. (laughs) Wow, that bad. But he wasn't done. He also commissioned a private detective to look into the author. (laughs) And what do you think that detective found, Ryan? Not much. He found that the Tibetan Lama was not a Lama or Tibetan or a monk or called Lobsang Rampa or had ever left the UK. He was, in fact, the son of a Devonshire plumber no! named Cyril Hoskins. Oh, this is a great story. Now, in fairness... <laughs> I've seen him described as a plumber, a plumber's apprentice, and the son of a son of a plumber. So I'm not sure exactly what, where his relationship was to plumbing, but he had he was plumbing adjacent for sure. That's a good uh, slur, isn't it? <laughs> son of a plumber, son of a plumber. So the story becomes <laughs> national news with headlines like "The Full Truth About the Bogus Lama." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what do you think Cyril said about all of this? Did you say it's a fair cop? No, he he, he doubled down. He doubled down. He did. Of course, he, he did. He ex- well, I mean, what? He cleared it all up, Ryan. He cleared it. Did he? he did. What did he say? Well, it turned out that what actually happened, it's just yeah. a misunderstanding. But of course. His body had been taken over by the Tibetan monk's spirit after he fell yes. out of a tree. 
Right, of course. So totally you have a tree, body taken over. Makes like, sense. It's happened so many times, doesn't it? I mean, it's almost boring at this point. Uh, so he goes on to write, totally unrepentant, several more books. <laughs> now, Excellent. The exact number of books depends on whether you count, number one, living with the llama. You might not count this one because it was apparently dictated to Rampa by Mrs. Fifi Greywhisker, who, of course, was his pet Siamese <laughs> cat. cat. <laughs> I was going to say cat. You might all also not include the one entitled My Visit to Venus, <laughs> which is based on his manuscript, although not actually written by him. But it does detail his various travels to other planets. <laughs> Got to admit, I have a bit of a soft spot for little Cyril here. Oh, honestly, his last book was Tibetan Sage. He hasn't he's not looked back. He just pub- keeps going. He published that in 1980, so he just stuck to it to the end. Uh, now, sadly, on 25th of January 1981, at the age of 70, Lobsang Rampa, or you might know him as Cyril, or actually you might also <laughs> know him as Dr. Carl Kwon Suo, which is another of the names he went by, uh, he sadly passed away. Um, oh. But of course, we shouldn't be sad because it's just a matter of time before he joins us again in another reincarnation, right? Absolutely. So I'm there- tempted to start writing some of these books. They're great. <laughs> so there it is, Ryan. That is a plumber in Tibet, in inverted commas, in the 1950s. <laughs> Son of a plumber! Son of a plumber! <laughs> I cannot tell you how delighted I was when I found that oh, story. Oh, you've been sat on that for weeks waiting to tell me, haven't you? I could feel it. Oh, it was a joy to write. I read the whole book as well. <laughs> He flies around the Himalayas in a big box, human-sized box kite as well. It's hilarious. <laughs> You've read some of his stuff. I read the whole thing. <laughs> wow. Oh, that's awesome. Okay, well, Pete, I mean, I've got to say, you rounded that off nicely. That's a fantastic story. Son of a plumber. <laughs> well done. I did not realise there was as much plumbing in the Himalayas as you have brought to us today. So well done, you. Thank you very much. I... Thoroughly enjoyed this episode and like, ah, question for you. Do you now feel like you would like to visit the Himalayas? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yay, we won you over. Hurrah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to poop 60 metres. Who doesn't? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, thanks for coming out. Yeah, no problem, mate. No problem. Yeah, look, you can just see it's leaking right here under the sink there. Oh, oh, yeah, I see that. Oh, that's a classic leak, that. So, look, if you could just fix that, that would be great. Oh, no problem at all. We'll have that sorted in no time. Fantastic. So, what I'll need you to do is go into the garden and sit cross-legged under a tree. Uh, right. And then realise that this leak, the pipes themselves, and in fact the entire material world, is just an illusion. I'm not really following you. Look, it's easy enough, mate. All you need to do is realise that your desire to have a drip-free sink is an ego-driven vanity preventing you from perceiving the vast interconnectedness of the universe. Once you've done that, you'll become one with everything, meaning you are the leak and the leak is you. Then you can just, you know, stop leaking. I'm sorry, but what kind of plumber are you? Buddhist. A Buddhist plumber? Yep, that's a thing. Right. Look, can you just fix it? Well, I could fix it, but that would be just a patch, wouldn't it? Allowing you to continue pandering to the vanity of the material. I just want to make a nice cup of tea. Well, there it is, you see. Once, that's what's holding you back. I, I really think it's the leak. Well, listen, best I can do for you is a quick fix, a couple of quick mantras that will help clear your mind, focus your spirit, and stop you worrying about the leak. So you can't just fix the leak? It's not really what we do, mate, sorry. Do you get much repeat business? Not really, no, but profit is just another illusion, you see. I see. Uh, 
Okay, well, Peter, what a fantastic episode. I, I've genuinely, I've been itching to hear these stories. So uh, that's fantastic. You did a really good job. So well done, mate. But times they are returning. Oh, yeah. And uh, the ears of the audience swivel in their sockets yet again. <laughs> I've and, really and, got to do a course in basic human anatomy, Ryan. <laughs> and and turn to, to towards me. Uh, because, Peter, it's my turn next. Hurrah! But it is also that time of year where we need to wheel out the Spookulator. That's right, because it's Halloween! Ooh, ah! Yeah, and yet again, Halloween falls to me. Oh, nice. I seem to get all the Halloween episodes. Well, you're a scary man. I'm spooky, spooky, spooky. <laughs> okay, well, let's get it out. Here it is. Oh, you got that cold chill down your spine yeah. when, it, when it rolled out. Something not right about it. They say that leather handle is made of human skin. <laughs> <laughs> not really, no. Couldn't afford it. <laughs> okay, right. It is on. Oh, gosh, I'm so spooked right now. Okay, what will it be? Peter, you ready to uh, pull the chain? I'm scared, but I'm going to do it. Okay, Ryan, here we go. Your spooky, scary place is... Paris! What? What, is in like France, Paris? It doesn't say. I will allow you Paris, France, Paris, Texas, or any of the other Parises you can find. Paris Hilton. Mm, Paris Hilton. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, all right, yeah, Paris, fine. Your terrifying time period is... 1800 to 1900. <laughs> Spooky times in the 19th century. Okay, yeah, sure. That sounds good. Paris, 19th century. This is easy already. It does sound doable, doesn't it? But you haven't heard your terrifying topic, which is... The Living Dead. Wow! The Living Dead, really? The living Dead. So, okay, so it's The Living Dead in Paris during the 19th century. That's it. As yeah, Famously, chock full of zombies. Yeah, they were all out, the streets were absolutely rammed with zombies. You couldn't move for zombies. Right. Well, okay, I'm going to have to rack my brains. Yay. All right, Pete, I'm on it. Nice. Okay, well, look, there you go. That is the show for this week. So thank you all for listening. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch about any of the things that we talked about on the show, or just to say hello, you can reach out to us through our website at hhepodcast.com or by email at peteandryan at hhepodcast.com. Yeah, we love hearing from you. Whenever anyone sends us a note, it makes us know you're out there and that you're enjoying it, and uh, we love it. So yeah, please do write in, and you never know, you might end up featured on a future show. That's right. And if you are on Mastodon, Instagram, Facebook, or X, you can find us at HHE Podcast. Now, if you subscribe to those, you'll get an alert every time we post extra content, like facts we didn't use, photos from the show, and, you know, other bits and bobs. That's right. And we are going to be back again soon with The Verdict. But until then, a huge thanks to you, Peter. Thanks to you, Ryan. And now let's flush it all away, because all that's left to say is... You've been listening to... History happened everywhere. Hey Ryan. Hey Pete. What's that you're drawing? Oh this, uh, it's a logo for my new charity, Save the Yeti. Save the Yeti? 
Yeah. It's going to provide crucial services to protect and develop endangered Yeti communities around the world. Right. We, we've talked about Yetis before, haven't we, Ryan? We have. And what did we say? There aren't any Yetis. Right. Well, how much more endangered can you get than that? No, Ryan, there are no Yetis because Yetis aren't real. <laughs> yeah, right. Right, so you're setting up a charity for a mythical creature. Well, I just think it's our duty to help, you know? Yetis are suffering and they need our support. So I'm going to start lobbying the government for grants and get them a tax-exempt status. But they're fictional, Ryan. Then they certainly shouldn't be paying tax, should they? Oh, Ryan, you're an idiot. This is a terrible idea. Oh, well, that's a shame because I've got ten grand in donations already. Oh, ten grand, really? Yeah, but the problem is I've already given it to the Yetis and they blew the lot at the casino. They did what? Yeah, Yetis love to bet. Ryan. Yes, Pete? Did you contrive this whole conversation to lead up to that Tibet pun? Yes, I did. Ryan. I've got more. How would you like one about them robbing their Nepals? Ryan! Wow. <laughs> Keep that in. <laughs>